If you would, go with me to Romans chapter 12. Romans 12, verses 14 through 16. At the beginning of this chapter, Paul was showing us that because of everything that God has done for us in Christ, that we are to offer to God our whole selves. He says, offer to God a living sacrifice, our bodies. And this is our reasonable, our appropriate act of worship. And then in order for us to do that, in order for us to give ourselves to God as a perpetual living sacrifice of worship, we have to have a transformed way of thinking. We can't be forced into the mold or the pattern of this world's way of thinking and acting. But we must have a transformed by the Spirit way of thinking and acting. And then Paul began to move into the very specific ways that we live out that transformed way of thinking. And one of the ways that we live that out is in the church, by being the body of Christ together and using our different gifts in love and working together in harmony as the body of Christ. And then beginning in verse 9, really through the end of the chapter, Paul lays out several different, very short exhortations about how we are to live out the Christian life. And all of these short exhortations are built on verses 1 and 2, that we offer to God our whole lives, and that we are transformed from the inside out, a new way of thinking, a new way of acting. And in verses 9 through 13 last week, we saw just the, the kind of love that as Christians we are to demonstrate toward one another. And we see some more exhortations in our passage this morning, in verses 14 through 16. These are very specific, very practical ways that we are to live out the Christian life. And I mentioned this last week, and we'll see it again this morning, that many of these exhortations from Paul in Romans 12, they're not difficult to understand. They're difficult to do. They're difficult to put into practice. And so we need God's grace for these. We need his help. But let's look at verses 14 through 16 in particular this morning. The Apostle Paul says, Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that we can have this opportunity today to worship you, to fellowship together as brothers and sisters in the Lord Jesus Christ, and even today as we gather together to live out some of these things that your servant Paul is exhorting us to do in this passage, by loving one another and by dwelling together in unity and humility. Lord, help us to understand your word, but even above and beyond that, Give us the grace and the strength that we need to put it into practice. And we pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. I've titled this message, Tough Love. But normally when we hear that phrase, tough love, we think of it in a different way than I'm intending it this morning. Normally when we think of tough love, we think of giving someone love that is tough for them to receive. It's tough to hear. Right. Uh, if if somebody is being lazy, some tough love is, hey, you need to get up and get busy. Right. That's that's some tough love. 
But the way that I'm using it today is this is love that's not tough to receive. It's tough to give. This is tough love in the sense that that this love is difficult. This love is demanding. This love is, is hard for us to do, to put into practice. This is a radical kind of love that Christ calls us to in this passage. And the very first thing that he calls us to in verse 14 is we as Christians are called to bless our persecutors. We are called to bless our persecutors. Now, first of all, that assumes that there will be persecution, right? And that's pretty much a New Testament assumption. That as followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, we will go through persecution. Jesus warned his disciples about it before he left. Almost every epistle letter in the New Testament speaks of different kinds of persecutions that God's people may face. Now, we don't know for sure, at least at the time that Paul is writing this, we don't know that there was yet any very strong official Roman persecution, like maybe we would see with Nero in a little, after a little while, maybe after this passage was written. We don't know if there's an, a formal you know, Roman persecution of the Christians that's going on at this time, but we do know that there was persecution of the early church in the first century world. There was persecution by Jews who did not believe that Jesus was the Christ. There were persecutions even locally where Christians were viewed as disruptive, as not fitting in with society. And a part of that society was worshiping the Greek and Roman gods and goddesses. And when the Christians didn't fit into that cultural mold, sometimes they were persecuted. And, and so there's the reality of persecution for Christ's church. It was true in the first century, and it is true today. God's people will face persecution. That's just the, the nature of reality. Right now, in places around the world, there are Christians, our brothers and sisters in Christ, our spiritual family, that are taking the risk of life to go and pray together and read and study the word together on a Sunday morning. They're risking arrest in places like communist China. They're risking physical persecution, torture, death in Muslim countries. There is very real persecution, physical, violent persecution that's going on against Christians today in our world. But also here in America, I think we are starting to see a, a shifting tide, aren't we? In terms of the way that Christians are viewed in our culture. Wasn't that long ago that Christians were generally viewed with respect and were treated well in our culture. But in just a short time, that has shifted. And more and more, especially in the media, but even in a growing majority of people, Christians are viewed as the enemy of our culture. We are viewed as the hindrances to progress. We are viewed as getting in the way of what the agenda wants to push toward. And there's persecution going on in America right now. There is, uh, 
and I'm trying to remember the details, and I'll, I'll probably mess up the details, but there was a, a Christian baker. I believe it was, a, it was a baker in Colorado, and he was sued by a couple because he would not bake for them a cake for their wedding, which was a homosexual wedding. It went all the way to the Supreme Court of the United States. The Supreme Court ruled in his favor. They ruled very narrowly just in his case, and they said that the Colorado Commission was being hostile toward religion in their handling of the case. And so they told Colorado, you need to deal with this better. But So it was a very limited ruling, but they ruled in his favor. Well, now I read recently that someone else has come asking this same man to bake a cake for celebrating transgenderism. And he has refused, and he's being sued again. So this man has spent the last several years of his life in court and in litigation and trying to hang on to a business, gone all the way to the Supreme Court, won that victory, and now he's being punished again by this same Colorado commission that was rebuked by the Supreme Court for the way that they were handling his case. Now he's going to have to go back to court again. Christians are facing persecution in our country. And the first wave of it will be just in name-calling and in slander. But then the next wave of it, as we're starting to see, will be in the financial realm of taking away your business, taking away your job, taking away your source of income. At some point, we might see imprisonment. In Canada, you can be fined by the government and even face jail time for simply quoting the Bible about homosexuality because it's hate speech. So our Western civilization, Europe, Canada, America, we're moving in that direction of more hostility toward Christians. So this exhortation, this command is very real for us. And there's going to come a point in time when we are going to face persecution ourselves directly. How will we respond? And the Apostle Paul says, and he's drawing here from the words of Jesus. We just read them a little while ago in Luke chapter 6. He's drawing from the words of Jesus here. And he says, those who persecute you, bless them. Bless them. Now, that is radical, isn't it? That's a radical command because that is completely the opposite way that we would tend to respond in that situation. When someone does, when someone hurts us, when someone does evil toward us, our natural response is vengeance, right? And that's just our natural, that's the way that we're wired, especially as sinful human beings. We want to get back at somebody. We, want, we don't want to wish good on them. We want to wish ill will on them. And Paul says, no, no, you've got to be against the grain of the culture. You've got to go against the grain of your nor- normal sinful depravity. You, you need to be living out a transformed way of thinking. This is definitely a transformed way of thinking, isn't it? To bless those who persecute you. So this is a radical countercultural command. One commentator says this, He says, in this instance, it is not difficult to understand the meaning of the text. But in the injunction to bless those who persecute us is one of the most revolutionary statements in the New Testament. 
and can be carried out only by the power of the Holy Spirit. This is a radical command. From from the human way of thinking, this is an impossible command. That we would love those who hurt us and persecute us. And yet, in the power of the Holy Spirit, we can do the impossible. And Christ calls us to love even those who are hurtful toward us. And by the way, the way that the apostle phrases this, he leaves no wiggle room, does he? He leaves no wiggle room here. He says, bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse. So let me, let me just make sure I cover all the bases here, is what Paul is saying. Now, what's blessing and cursing? Now, in, in, southern, in southern states, we have a southernism, right? Bless her heart. Bless his heart. You know, sometimes we say that as a, as a phrase of pity almost at times. Uh, what does Paul mean here? To bless someone. To bless someone is specifically to look for the good for the well-being to come to and to happen to another individual. Even to go so far as to pray for God to bless and to send his good fortune and his good blessings on this individual. Bless them. It is the opposite of cursing. Cursing is to wish ill will on someone. Cursing is really to call out imprecations on someone and to call out to God for God to smite them. And this is saying, no, no, we don't wish ill will on them. We don't even want, we don't even want to pray for God to curse them. We're praying for God instead to bless them. And it's not as if we can say, bless you, and then walk away and under our breath, we can say, man, I wish this bad thing would happen to them. No, from the heart, totally committed we are desiring with all of our hearts something good to happen to this person. That is hard to do. And we need God's grace to help us in that. But why should we do that? Why should we bless those who are our enemies and those who persecute us? It's because God did that for us. God did that for us, didn't he? We should bless our persecutors because God blessed us with his mercy when we were his enemies. Romans 5.8 But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Romans 5.10 For if while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? We were the enemies of God, and God loved us. And he gave Christ for us. God is the perfect example of loving those who mistreat him. And so we are called to, as Jesus said in Luke chapter 6, we are called to be merciful as our Father in heaven is merciful. That's a tough, demanding ethic but we can do it in the power of the Holy Spirit through a transformed way of thinking. And by the way, this requires an eternal perspective, doesn't it? This requires an eternal perspective because you can, you can give and you can bless those who persecute you now when you know that in eternity, everything will be made right. 
And God will set everything just and righteous. And he will mete out his judgments and punishments in the way that he deems best at his time. When you have that eternal perspective, you can give in the here and now. As Jesus says in Luke chapter 6, you can give and not expect repayment. You can let somebody smack you on the cheek and turn the other. You can do that because you have an eternal perspective, knowing that this life isn't all there is. There's another one, better one to come. So we're called on to bless those who persecute us, mirroring God's blessing of us when we were his enemies. Secondly, in verse 15, Paul says that as Christians, we are called to share in both the joyous and the sorrowful experiences of others. He says, rejoice with those who rejoice, mourn with those who mourn. Essentially, Paul is calling on us to empathize with, to share with the experiences and the emotions of one another. I think probably particularly our brothers and sisters in Christ, but maybe even beyond that, just as general goodwill. That when someone is rejoicing, that we share in that, that we experience that rejoicing as if it were our own rejoicing. That when someone is mourning, when someone is weeping, when someone's going through a difficult time, that we share with them in that as if it were our own sadness, our own difficulty that we were experiencing. This also is tough to do, isn't it? In terms of mourning or weeping with those who weep, I think we tend to want to keep an arm's distance and and we express our condolences We express our sorrow, but many of us naturally tend to want to not fully enter into that mourning and that weeping and share in that experience with those that are going through difficult times. We want to bless people from afar, but Paul is calling on us to enter into that and and to share with that as if it were our own. But even I think maybe even more difficult to do is to rejoice with those who rejoice. Going all the way back to the early church fathers, I think it was Augustine who said that this may be the the more difficult of the two to do because of our own tendency for selfishness and envy. Sometimes it's very hard for us to share in the successes of others because we wish that they were our successes. We wish that they were our joys especially if it's somebody in the same arena or the same field in which you work or something that you would desire for yourself, it's hard to rejoice with those who rejoice because your immediate reaction is, well, why didn't that happen to me? Why, why, why can't that happen? Why, why does that never happen in my experience? And we can immediately jump to envy instead of truly rejoicing for them and with them in that experience. But Paul calls us to share in their experiences, to really join with them as brothers and sisters in Christ and to enter into their experience with them and feel those emotions with them. That's tough to do, but through, again, the transforming power of the Spirit, he gives us the grace to do that. Why should we do that? Why should we enter into the experience of others? Because Jesus entered into our experience. 
the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 4, he says, We have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold firmly to the faith that we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. The writer of Hebrews says, we have somebody who empathized with us. We have somebody who entered into our experience with us. Jesus did not stay aloof, did he? Jesus came. He lived among us. He walked with us. He experienced the hardships with us. And did he not rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep? Shortest verse in the Bible, John eleven thirty five, at the death of Lazarus, says that Jesus wept. Was he weeping for his own sadness for Lazarus? Perhaps. Was he weeping for his own sadness at the unbelief of the people around him? Perhaps. Or perhaps he was weeping with those who were weeping. And he was entering into their experience with them and sharing in their sorrow. But Jesus was one who entered into our experience with us. We don't have an aloof high priest. We have a high priest who is with us and who lived among us and experienced all the difficulties and hardships of this world. And so he calls on us to do the same for others, to enter into their joys and enter into their sorrows and help bear them up in their times of sorrow and go to the heights with them in their times of joy. Thirdly, The Apostle Paul says that we should adopt a spirit of humility in the way that we relate to one another in verse 16. He says, live in harmony with one another. And literally, if kind of a more literalistic wooden word-for-word translation in verse 16 is be of the same mind with one another. Be of the same mind. And when it says be of the same mind, it doesn't necessarily mean that we have to agree on everything or that we all have to have exactly the same preferences and likes and dislikes. But it does mean that we are, we're coming to a place of levelness, if you will. It it has more to do with status, especially as we look at the rest of the verse. I think the idea is that we are putting ourselves, seeing ourselves as on the same plane as everyone else. That, in other words, we're not having a high-minded view of ourselves, but we're having a same-minded view of one another. And so we see later on the verse, he says, Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. In other words, be willing to live with those who maybe don't have the same level of knowledge or the same level of education or the same level of income or the same level of status in society as you, you are to see yourself as joined together in the same status with one another. Think about this in in the context of the first century world. In, In Rome, when Paul is writing this, he's writing this to Christians in Rome, to churches in Rome, and there very, very well could be, and, and probably was every single Sunday, a situation in which there would be a master and a slave sitting next to each other, 
singing praises to God and being brothers in Christ in the same pew, if you will. The idea here is whatever levels of status, of rank, of of you know wealth, class, whatever that society labels you with, Paul is saying in terms of the people of God, when we gather together, the ground is equal at the foot of the cross, right? We're all on the same level ground, humbled before a gracious heavenly father. And so like in the book of James, James says, you know, if you see a rich person come in your congregation and you say, hey, here, come sit in this nice place. Or, and then you see a, a poor person come in here, go sit under this person's footstool. James says that that ought not to be. Because we are all one in Christ. And so live in the same mind, same viewpoint with one another. Don't be proud, but see yourselves as associated on the same level with other people who may not be in your same social class or rank. Why should we do this? Because Jesus did it for us. Philippians chapter 2. By the way, another place where Paul says, be of the same mind. Philippians chapter 2, he says, let your way of thinking, let your mindset be that as the same of Jesus Christ. And what was his mindset? He left the glories of heaven and took upon himself the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. Jesus associated with people of low estate, didn't he? He became a servant for us. And he came down and he lived among us and he put himself in our level, took upon humanity and not just any humanity, not a royal humanity, but the humanity of servanthood. Born into poverty, lived in one of the most disrespected towns in Galilee, in Nazareth. Grew up in a hard life, not in the life of nobility or aristocracy, but just a common person. Giving himself to other people. And then in the end, giving himself with the greatest servanthood of all in giving his life for us on the cross of Calvary. And so Paul says, let's be like Jesus in not being lifted up, not being conceited, but in putting ourselves at the same level as everyone else. So we should adopt a spirit of humility in the way that we relate to one another. If I were to put three words on these three verses, I would say verse 14 is magnanimity, having a magnanimous spirit even towards those who are enemies. Empathy, in verse 15, empathizing with others in their experiences and emotions. And in verse 16, humility. Humility. Seeing ourselves on the same plane with our fellow humanity and our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. Magnanimity, empathy, and humility. And God, by His grace, can transform us to live as Christ showed us the example. And so may he help us to do that and forgive us where we fail. Let's bow in prayer together. Father in heaven, we give you thanks, Lord, because you have been such a merciful and gracious God to us. We want to thank you, Lord, that even while we were enemies, even while we were hostile toward you, even while we were wandering away, going our own path,
that, Father, you loved us. And you sent Christ to come and to be our Redeemer, to give his life for us that we might be saved and that we might be adopted into your family. You loved the unlovable. And Lord, now you've called us to follow in your example. We thank you, Father, that you sent Jesus to come and share in our experiences with us. And now that, now that he has ascended, we have a great high priest who has lived among us and who has experienced our suffering. And we can go through him to you in prayer. Lord, may we also share in the experiences of others. We thank you, Lord, that Jesus humbled himself and came down to us and lived as a servant among us that we might have life. Lord, may we be like Jesus in humbling ourselves and living in harmony with one another. Lord, thank you for what you've called us to do. Thank you for the grace that you have given to us that we did not deserve. Now, Lord, give us the power, give us the strength to live these things out. And Lord, we're thankful that you are a gracious and forgiving God. And we pray this in the name of Christ. Amen.